Certain information set forth in the podcast may contain forward-looking statements under applicable security laws. These statements are not guarantees of future performance, and undue reliance should not be placed on them. Although forward-looking statements contained in this presentation are based upon what management of the company believes to be reasonable assumptions, there can be no assurance that forward-looking statements will prove to be accurate. LifeSci Advisors and the company undertake no obligation to update forward-looking statements in the podcast should circumstances or management's estimates or opinions change. This podcast is for general information purposes only. It is not an offer or solicitation to buy securities and does not constitute investment advice. The impact of 3601 on the bone metabolism through well-known biomarkers, CTX and PYNP. But basically, what we were able to see is that during the two weeks of treatment, there was absolutely no impact on 3601 on either bone resorption or bone formation. Again, this is in line with what we have seen in animal, animal models before, and in line with the mechanism of action of the product. Hello, my name is Neil Canavan, and this is Benchtop Bios, a podcast series by LifeSite Partners, where we introduce healthcare investors to the people and the pipelines driving the biotech sector forward. Today, my guest is Dr. Thierry Habrevan. He is the founder and chief executive officer of Amelite Pharma. Doctor, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, uh, Neil, for having me with you today. All right, so let's orient the listener. Doctor, hit me with the elevator pitch for Amelite. How long have you been in business? Where are you headquartered? And give me a little bit of an idea of what you do there. So Amelite Pharma is a biotech company that is at the clinical stage. Our goal is to build and develop a portfolio of therapeutic peptides or other modalities for the treatment of rare endocrine and related diseases. Today, we have two programs in development and we're continuing to build that portfolio. And we are based in Lyon in France and in Boston, Massachusetts. So I'm going to just assume you were actually born in France. So there we have it. Now, you're training also in France. But I first want to ask you about that young Frenchman. What did you want to grow up to be? And are you anything like that now? I'm quite proud of what I've done in the last 40 years, let's say, after I graduated. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, but made my undergraduate studies in France it's to become a doctor in veterinary medicine. I discovered physiology and biology, and I got a passion for biology and physiology. And I knew that I wanted to work in the field of innovation at some point, and I developed my appetite to be an entrepreneur at some point. Interesting. So as you mentioned, you did get your training in veterinary medicine. You then left school. You decided to get a job at Sanofi, small startup. I've heard of them. What were your duties at Sanofi? Were you at the bench? Yeah, I was a scientist. I really discovered science and research when I was at Sanofi. And it was during, actually it began during my veterinary studies. And I really understood at some point that science and research was were going to be important in my life because I just got some passion about it and I wanted to complete it with a PhD that I did afterwards. Did you see the PhD as necessary for a business career or you still wanted to be a scientist? Not necessary for the business. Before talking about business, you want to understand what you're going to work in. I'm the kind of CEO who need to understand 
the core activity of the company I'm managing. So you have to begin with science. And at that time, I was so impressed and interested with science that I decided to spend a few more years to make a PhD in neuroendocrinology. Why that discipline? Was there a particular mentor involved? Yeah, it was a time in neuroendocrinology in the 70s, 80s. So I did uh, began that in the 80s, where there had been a series of uh, major discoveries of the hypothalamic hormones, somatostatin, GHRH, LHRH, CRH, mm-hmm. that today you see a lot of applications developed by biotech and pharma companies. And I was able to work in the lab in Montreal of Paul Brazo, who had, was just coming back from uh, the Salk Institute, where he had spent uh, 15 years with uh, Dr. Roger Guima, who had, has been a Nobel Prize for discoveries of dyspeptides. And I had the opportunity to basically learn research at a very high level during the three, four years when I did this PhD. It was very motivating. I know you were fascinated by the science. Did you have an opportunity to meet any patients? Yes, I've had the opportunity to meet patients who have endocrine problems and other problems we all have in our families and close friends the unfortunate mm. opportunity to meet with disease. But uh, through the program we are developing now, yes, we meet uh, patients on a regular basis, and of course, our doctors. We'll get to that in just a few minutes. First, there's a couple more stops along the way. By the way, the PhD training we haven't mentioned what was in uh, Montreal in Canada, where you stayed on and you did some work at the University of Montreal for about five years in academia. Then in 1996, you found a company. You are the co-founder. This is called Asana Laboratories. So first, you do leave the bench. Why found a company? And how did it turn out? Because it was a huge mistake. Or not really a mistake <laughs> when I look back. I considered I was ready. I even completed my academic training by an executive training at McGill to understand a little bit more marketing, finance, etc., and I really wanted to build companies. So I've created a company that was not at all in my field, that was developing insoles that have proprioceptive actions to modulate posture, etc. So really uh, oh, very different. a physiology point of view. And I will not take too much of your time, but this is a kind of experience that you remember all your life because it was a failure. It was a company that was meant to be a marketing company. I was a scientist, so I thought I was going to develop a research and development company. We are supposed to have some distribution network for our products, which collapsed. And really, retrospectively, at the time, it was tough because I had to stop it. I stopped it when my first son was born, by the way. I wanted to be serious. But I learned a lot that when you build a company, even more important than the product you develop is the people you work with. And this is really what can make the success of the failure of your, of your company and have the right positioning as well of the company and of your product. So it's a classical first experience that is not highly positive, but that learns a lot. The first one was not a success. The following were more interesting. We'll see. What happens is that when you fail like that, that means you get to be a consultant. You have to be a consultant, you say. <laughs> yeah. after no, that, my, my, you, my, you know all the wrong things to do now. 
Frankly, my reaction has been, I was lucky to meet with someone whose name is André de Villers. He's a physician in the Montreal area, and he has himself founded uh, several biotech companies in the 80s. And he had founded a company called Terra Technologies. And this company was developing a drug that was based on a patent I had filed at the University of Montreal on a GHRH analog. I was talking oh, to you okay. about those hypothalamic factors. And he was a great entrepreneur and somebody who told me, Thierry, you have built a company, you have failed, but you're going to do another one. And the next one will be successful. So he helped me to be back on track, I would say, because I was not very happy with what happened at that time. Mm. And he told me, do you want to work with me? And I took a few years to understand better biotech drug development. And basically, I did that by developing this compound, GHRH analog. We were almost lucky when you see, look at that. We took this product from the patent, made the preclinical development, phase one, phase two, phase three, and the product has been approved and is currently commercialized in the U.S. for the treatment of HIV lipodystrophy. So it's a very good training, I can tell you, because you go by doing yourself all the development of a compound from A to Z, basically. So very nice experience. So fantastic. So then you take that success and you decide to go back to the home country. You return to France. You become the CEO and acting VP of R&D of something called OPI Pharmaceuticals. Uh, this is a company that focuses on rare disease, which obviously brings us into today. You're a rare disease company person. You were there for two years. Why that opportunity? You know, sometimes you move not only for professional reasons, you also move for personal reasons. My wife and I are French, and we decided we wanted to get closer to the family at some point yeah, when yeah. we were in the 40s. And I had this proposal by a search firm, a headhunter, who proposed me to have this position in this company. And I was very interested because this company... First of all, it was a different therapeutic field. I wanted to test something different from endocrinology, so it's onco-hematology. And this mm -hmm. company was already at the commercial stage as well. So I was very interested to not only look at the R&D side, but also to have experience in commercializing drugs for rare disease as well. It was a very interesting experience. So I was working directly with the founder and the president of that company, Gilles Alberici, who had himself build this company. Could I get you to uh, elaborate just a bit on that? I mean, you were at several companies prior to this, but this is a rare disease company. Is that a different sort of animal? I've been working in the rare disease field forever. So it's all the same to you? What was different is the therapeutic field. This was onco-hematology. We mm. were particularly focused on acute lymphoblastic leukemia. But in terms of, of course, developing a drug for cancer is very different than developing a drug for endocrinology. But this being said, when you think about matching a patient's needs and establishing very closed relationship with investigators, and in the field of rare disease, investigators are very close to their patients as well. So you're close to the patient as well. This is exactly the same paradigm. I would say this is the same kind of uh, the way you do it. And at the commercialization, the same also. You don't work with a lot of reps. You work with a few medical science liaison people who themselves have scientific discussions with the investigators. It's very similar. 
if you could elaborate just a bit more on that. So what I'm hearing is, as opposed to other far broader disease states with many, many more patients, there's some degree of networking that's going on here. You need to have these relationships. Are you also forming relationships with patient advocacy groups? Oh, yeah, totally. This is very important. Maybe I'm going to a little bit too fast in, in the discussion here, but I'm going to give you the example of just two weeks ago, there was a rare disease where we have had the major luck to interview some patients with hypoparathyroidism because we are treating those patients. We developed a drug for those patients. We went through the patient advocacy group, the Hypoparathyroidism Association in the U.S., in the UK. And since day one, even with animal data, we approached those patient advocacy groups. They help us also to understand better the patient because most of the time, the people who manage those associations are themselves uh, patients. So we have the major privilege to be able to work with them uh, from day one in a program. At least if you don't do that, it's a big mistake because they are very, uh, and they give us a lot of motivation as well, of course. I want to dive into the assets that you're working with now, but first we have to clear something up. There might have been a little bit of confusion if someone looked at your LinkedIn profile of tracing the lineage of your company. In 2008, you founded something called Elise Pharma, and this, through various ways and means, became the company you're at today. Could you just briefly walk me through that journey of how this company came to be? Yeah, it was a pleasure. So in 2007, we sold OP to AUSA Pharma, and then I decided maybe I'm ready to found my own companies. So I founded initially two biotech companies, Alize Pharma and Alize Pharma 2. Here, this was a special business model where the goal was to have companies with single assets, so single programs. We were in licensing early stage programs from the academia or from other biotech companies with the goal to bring them to the clinic. And the business model at that time was to find a partner when we were in phase one or phase two of clinical development. We were not heavily funded and this is what we did. So Alize Pharma has developed product for Prader-Willi syndrome that we have brought to the end of phase two. And we had a very positive results, and it was a very interesting time working with the investigators, the patients, etc. We sold that company to another U.S. biotech called Milando Therapeutics. And the second company was named Alize Pharma 2. I wasn't very creative on names at the <laughs> time. And we have developed a recombinant L-asporogenase for the treatment of acute lymphoblastic leukemia. This is a field that I knew a little bit because I had worked at OP. And we have brought the product to phase one. Then we have licensed the program to adjust pharmaceuticals and eventually adjust pharmaceuticals has acquired uh, the whole company. And then finally? And it was very interesting because Jazz Pharmaceutical just uh, launched, had the approval and launched the product last July in the U.S. So it's quite satisfactory to see that we had have given at least the first impulse in that, uh, in that story. And we have created the Alize Pharma tree originally with the same kind of business model. And after having sold the first two companies, I just took a little bit of time to think about what I really wanted to do in life for the rest of my career. 
And the real question was when I really will stop doing research and development and innovation. When I look back, is there anything I will regret not to have tried at least? And then the response came immediately. I'm very impressed by those companies like Jazz Pharmaceuticals, I just mentioned about it, Biomarine, Ultragenics that had the cap- have had the capacity to move from very small companies as large companies that not, that have a very strong impact for the patient, of course, that is our primary goal, but also that have a social impact that creates, um, I know this is a word that is uh, very often said, that creates a sustainability. It's not like you create a company, you sell it. But here they have really the opportunity to create a job on a long-term basis. And this is really what I want to try to do. And this is why we have changed the name from Alize Pharma Tree to Amolid Pharma. And to be able to do that, you need to have some strong financing, some support by large investors. And this is what we were happy, proud, and lucky to do, and really launching the new Amolid Pharma in 2019. All right. Well, let's talk about that launch and the two drugs that we're going to be talking about today for rare diseases. The first one is AZP3601. This is a parathyroid hormone analog. It is a peptide. It's indicated for the treatment of hyperthyroidism. So, doctor, if you can briefly describe the condition, the unmet need here, especially since a friend of mine had his thyroid removed 20 years ago, and he's pretty much fine with the pills that they give him. So what's the unmet need? Yeah, this is very normal because when you have a thyroid cancer or another problem in the thyroid and you end up by having the thyroid surgery, most of the cases you need, of course, thyroxine, so mm-hmm. thyroid hormone uh, supplementation all your life, and most of the cases, no problem. In a small fraction of those patients, maybe 2%, there's uh, also a high deficiency in a hormone called parathyroid hormone mm-hmm. because PTH is secreted by those parathyroid glands, and parathyroid glands are located really in the vicinity of uh, thyroid. So through the surgery, you can damage the parathyroid gland or remove them. And a very small fraction of those patients not only have a thyroid deficiency, but also have parathyroid deficiency. And those, of course, they have acutely, a lot of them have some calcium problems. But after six months, if you still have hypocalcemia, then you're diagnosed and you don't have circulating PTH, of course, then you're diagnosed as a chronic hypoparathyroidism. Now, in your deck, you state that this condition requires three therapeutic goals, which can be generally described as reductions in fatigue and cramping, kidney stones, and osteoporosis. So three buckets. Why break it out like that? Does this refer to how the trial is going to be run? Because the unmet need in those patients is really the result of both the disease and the standard of care. This is a PTH deficiency. So the logical treatment should be PTH replacement therapy, right? Mm -hmm. But it's very difficult to do for several reasons. So the standard of care is calcium supplementation. Basically, when you have hypoparathyroidism, you have low serum calcium. So your doctor tells you to take calcium supplementation and vitamin D supplementation as well, because vitamin D helps to absorb calcium from the gut. But it helps those patients survive, of course, because if you have really too low calcium levels, too low calcemia, 
then you die because calcium is very important for the metabolism of all cells and organs in the body. But there's other physiological actions that are missing of PTH in those patients. PTH is also responsible for the reabsorption of calcium by the kidney. So when those patients, they take calcium supplementation, grams per day, all the calcium is eliminated through the urine, accumulate through the kidney, accumulate into the, into the urine. And, there's the- and this high-increased urinary calcium is responsible for at least a major contributing factor for the formation of stones, right. kidney stones, and kidney failure. Over one quarter of those patients have chronic kidney disease. So not only you have the problem of serum calcium that fluctuates all day long with a standard of care, and that is responsible for the symptoms that you mentioned, neuromuscular symptoms and cognitive symptoms, but the standard of care together with the disease is responsible for a very important problem at the kidney level. The bone is important as well because the vast majority of hypoparathyroidism patients are women. Over 80% of the patients are women. They are typically middle-aged. More than half of this patient population are women at peri- or post-menopausal stage. Mm-hmm. So they are going physiologically they are going to have a progressive bone loss. Close to 20% already have osteopenia and osteoporosis. Of course, that is responsible for fractures. So what you do with the PTH product you're using for replacement therapy on the bone is very important. At least for an important fraction of those patients, you don't want to induce additional bone loss from what they already have physiologically. So that's why there are three important clinical needs to be considered in those patients. Okay, so add that up for me. What kind of market size are we looking at? So in terms of patients, just take the U.S., it's approximately 80,000 patients. So you have one third of the patient, the first segment, I would say, of the patient population. This is a segment of patients who have really, for which, for whom the symptoms is a major problem. One third of the patients have very severe symptoms and basically ruin their life. And collectively, 80% of patients have severe or moderate symptoms. So the second segment is the kidney you have over 26% of patients who have already chronic kidney disease, plus even more of those patients who are at risk because they have elevated urinary calcium. In the bone, I just mentioned to you, 20%, close to 20% osteopenia and osteoporosis, and more than half of the patients who are women at risk of developing bone loss. So this represents several, each of the segments represents uh, a very important need that is a support for a uh, potential large market. Okay, so we are in the clinic. You're in phase one. This was broken out in three different parts, simply called A, B, and C. We have 52 patients in A, 50 in B. As I understand it, those were healthy volunteers. Part C, the N equals 24, and those were actual patients. Now we have some data here. Could you give me just your preliminary data? for what we have so far? So our first trial that is typically, usually a phase one trial that usually includes only healthy volunteers, we voluntarily have made it larger, a broad phase one program to include both healthy volunteers and patients Mm -hmm. with the objective to be able to accelerate the development afterwards. So we wanted to learn enough on the compound 
both in terms of safety and efficacy to be able to accelerate the development afterwards. So today, so we have launched late in 2020, the first parts in healthy volunteers. These are very classical, so-called single ascending and multiple ascending dose mm-hmm, studies mm-hmm. in healthy volunteers up to two weeks of administration and in the mad part in healthy volunteers. And we have announced and presented these data at the ASBMR meeting last October. Mm-hmm. We have been very pleased with those results because what we have measured is really supportive of the target product profile we have with AZP3601. First of all, we have shown that in healthy volunteers, AZP3601 is able to increase uh, serum calcium in a dose-dependent fashion and in a sustainable fashion. So what we really enjoyed to see, especially after a few days of administration on day 7, on day 14, we made some profiling over 24 hours of serum calcium and they were very stable from the morning to the next morning. And this is what you want to see in the patients, very stable serum calcium within normal range because this is what will allow you to get rid of the symptoms. So obviously, this was healthy volunteers who we increased serum calcium in patients. We intend to restore normal serum calcium levels and keep them normal. Second of all, we saw that at the kidney level, there was a sustained calcium reabsorption by the kidney because we had a very marked elevation of serum calcium but absolutely no change in urinary calcium excretion, 24-hour urinary calcium. And this is explained by the fact that the kidney was much more efficient in reabsorbing, recycling serum calcium. Again, in patients, we would like to see that translate into those patients who have elevated urinary calcium. We would like to see those urinary calcium be normalized, but we'll know that when we have patients' data. And finally, and this is a very important part of our target product profile. We have assessed the impact of 3601 on the bone metabolism through well-known biomarkers, CTX and PYNP. But basically, what we are able to see is that during the two weeks of treatment, there was absolutely no impact on 3601 on either bone resorption or bone formation. Again, this is in line with what we have seen in animal animal models before and in line with the mechanism of action of the product. All right. Well, this data was impressive enough to earn you the orphan drug designation from the European Commission on just March 1st, which was a couple of weeks ago. Now, let me just skip ahead. Crystal ball, let's say everything goes as planned. You have an approved drug. What does the rollout look like in an orphan disease space as far as adoption? Do you really have to like reach out to these people because there's actually so few patients? Yes, you need to reach out to endocrinologists. Of course, we are developing Amolit Pharma. All our drugs we intend to develop uh, really are in endocrinology, so we really want to collaborate with them from scratch way before we are at the commercial stage. But what is important for those rare diseases that are severe diseases to have clinically effective drugs. This is the most important. Marketing will be important at some point, of course, but what is important is to show the endocrinologist and their patients, because in that kind of disease, patients are very educated through their patient advocacy groups and suffering. So they know what the problem at the kidney, symptom, etc. And so they want to see clinical data and they want to see differentiated data 
to be able to say, okay, we are going to use that product. So, and this is what you're building during the development of a product for rare disease, this relationship with both the patient and the investigators, because you don't want to take them by surprise. You have a design of a clinical study. If it does not respond to the question, to the target, does not target the unmet need, then you have a problem. That's why we are working very closely to, with them. All right. We have about five or six minutes left, and I want to move on to the second asset in a very different disease state. The asset is AZP3813. The disease state is agromeglia. So briefly, why pursue this space? Did the asset come to you first? You know, at Amolit, we have, and we didn't talk about the team at Amolit, I'm very happy to work with other executives. I'm not alone in this company. I have experienced executives with me, and most of them have spent almost their career in the field of endocrinology and metabolism, on drug design, on drug development, even on commercialization. So we have networks from our previous experience. So our CSO was in touch with that company, Peptidream, in Japan, and we had identified acromegaly as a disease where, an endocrine disease where we believe there's still a need to have a product to improve the control in those patients. And we learned that this company had a series of gross hormone receptor antagonists, peptides, and they're very good at discovering peptides and peptide chemistry. And we have established a research collaboration with them that went quite fast because it was successful and they had very good products. We have tested them, selected one to enter, and we have launched development last fall. So we are currently in IND enabling studies and the product will be clinical in 2023. What will be the market size here? So you have approximately 60,000 patients in the US and Europe altogether. This is a market where there are already drugs on the market. Those patients have access. This is, you know, acromegaly is an excess gross hormone secretion that has associated with major uh, comorbidities and medical complications. The goal is to decrease gross hormone secretion. So this, what is responsible for that is a pituitary adenoma. So first of all, there is a surgery to remove part of the adenoma to reduce the number of uh, gross hormone secreting cells, basically. And then you have somatostatin analogs. So there are a bunch of uh, products that are very effective. and the uh, Therapeutic goal is to decrease the uh, mediator of uh, gross hormone secretion, which is IGF-1. Today, over 60% of patients are not controlled, despite okay. these uh, existing drugs, including the somatostatin analogs. There is a need for, and we are developing, this is quite original, our gross hormone receptor antagonist as an add-on therapy to somatostatin analog. So we are not competing as a space of somatostatin. We just want to collaborate with them. And this is why we love this program very much. It's because not only we are developing a drug, but we are going, hopefully, if our assumption is correct, we are going to increase the number of patients who are controlled. So this is a really a very virtuous goal in our professional life. All right, so let's turn to more strictly business questions, I suppose. Tell me just a bit about manufacturing. Who's making your peptides? So these are so-called contract manufacturing organization. I cannot tell you the names. Yeah. It's a little bit confidential, but we have manufacturing mainly in Europe because our peptides 
it's not biological process. This is a chemical process mm -hmm. where you, it's a solid phase peptide synthesis. It's a chemistry. So it's quite well managed. So we have a, a very large and experienced CMOs working with us to ensure the quality of the products. Okay, how about IP? Is it all in-house? So we're having license acquired our program for our partners. Our AZP3601, we acquired the AZP3601 molecule, uh, the right, from the Mass General Hospital in Boston mm -hmm. because they are the scientists who have discovered the receptor, the conformation of the receptor, because this is an analog. So this is very different from natural PTH. This is why it has just such a strong impact on kidney and a very physiological impact on the bone. So we have acquired the right, we have in license the uh, several patents from the MGH. The same for the peptidrim compound, the acromegaly compound, we have in license, we have exclusive right, of course, on the patent that has been filed. And we complete that with orphan drug designation, both in US and Europe for all programs. And let's end with a talk about money. You did a Series A in 2019, a Series B in 2021, and there were some nice names on this. Orbimed was there, Pontifax was there. So what sort of runway does that give you right now? And what sort of conversations are you looking to have in the near future with investors? Yeah, on that, I feel really proud and lucky to a certain point. Oh, yeah, to get a Series B out last year? Wow. <laughs> the, the, the company is supported by a strong uh, VCs. You have named a few. I need to name a few others, then, otherwise they are going to be, to be <laughs> jealous. But uh, LSP has been the lead uh, investor so, uh, among the largest in uh, VC in Europe on the Series A. We have Novo Venture as well. And the Series B has been led by sectoral asset management, the US fund, as well as uh, under our partners, a large, another large European fund. So we have a strong investor syndicate. It's very good to have this kind of syndicate, especially in the kind of uh, period we are going through oh God, yes. in terms of financial markets. So we were happy to close that Series B last September. We have cash through 2023, so cash in 2024. We will have a very important catalyst this year uh, for additional say, transactions. Uh, Mid-year, we, we should be able to announce data in patients for in hypoparathyroidism. Our Part C of the trial, as you have seen, we should have the results in June-July uh, timeframe. And there's a lot of people who are waiting for those data, including ourselves. Mm -hmm. It's going to be the signal to move into late-stage development. And we'll want, of course, to finance the uh, pivotal trial because we, we believe the next trial will be a pivotal trial for that program. All right. So the last question, this has to do with COVID. When can I get to see you face-to-face -face presenting data at a meeting? Whenever you want. <laughs> In France, since yesterday, uh, mask is not mandatory anymore. Okay. I was last week in Amsterdam to present the company to Biocapital Europe. It was uh, without mask. So on the European side, and I know in the US and uh, Canada side, it's also going into the right direction. We're very relieved that after two years, it has not been easy to manage the company. Just want to say that I've been very impressed by our team. I know it has been the same in other companies. Uh, the team, even working from home with the kids at home, makes it right, the you know, toughest times, mm -hmm. has been able to make it, moving the program forward without almost no delay. 
So I'm very thankful to them or our subcontractors as well, CROs and CMOs. Basically, they have made it happen for us as well. So it has been a tough time. Hopefully it's finished. Finger crossed. Well, doctor, thank you so much for joining me today. Congratulations on your success so far and, and the best of luck going forward. Ladies and gentlemen, that is a wrap. Today I was speaking with Thierry Abrabat. He is the founder and chief executive officer of Emily. Doctor, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much, Neil. It was a very pleasant conversation. Thank you for listening to this week's Benchtop Bios. I hope that this episode will serve as yet another data point to guide you in your investment strategies. If you wish to hear more of Lifesize Benchtop Bios, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google. Also, if there's a company or a particular executive you'd like to get to know, I do take requests. Please send those to ncanadad at lifesciadvisors.com. Until next week then, goodbye, or for that matter, good sell, whatever boosts your portfolio.